0: My brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a smooth man. My brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a smooth man. I've always wanted to start a sermon with those words. Alan Bennett famously did in a sketch from Beyond the Fringe in 1960. It was a parody of a sermon where an affected vicar used obscure Bible quotes and meandering stories to make points of dubious value. Imagine that. Uh, And so Esau's hairiness and Jacob's smoothness were just the job. Their account of follicle quantity reinforced the idea that the Bible had little to say to the modern world. And that question did perhaps pass our minds as we heard the Bible account read to us by Marion just now. We might wonder what a story that took place 4,000 years ago and 2,000 miles away might have to say to our world today. After all, those people didn't have the school run to contend with, Facebook to keep up with, let alone strictly to follow. Or more seriously, theirs was not a world where terrorism uh, haunted uh, uh, civil, civilization as it did in Paris on Friday night. Perhaps one might say that their world was almost completely different to ours. So what can it say? I want to suggest three reasons why actually we should pay very careful attention to our story this morning. First of all, it is not just any story. It comes from God's word, the Bible. And as such, we can expect it to be useful to us. That's why we're spending this term looking through the first chunk of the book of Genesis, because we believe God will speak through his word. The second reason why uh, I suggest this story is important is because it explores and lays bare something that has not changed in 4,000 years, and that's this. It's the human heart. Today, we are going to see people's wills and motives laid bare, and I think we'll find them only too recognisable. And the third reason why this story matters is because it points to the unchanging character of God who will bring his purposes about. For behind this sad story of family breakdown is a God who has not given up and will not give up. Now, for us who live in the light of the events just 200 miles away in Paris on Friday, that really matters. But perhaps this morning you're just looking at what Christians believe. Perhaps you're just seeking to make your own mind up. Well, this morning we're going to catch a glimpse in the unchanging character of God, what the heart of Christian faith is really about. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this story, first of all, from a human perspective, looking at the nature of the family breakdown and drawing a few lessons from that. But then we're going to look at it again from a divine perspective, through God's eyes, and ask how God is still in charge both then and now. So perhaps you'll turn with me in your Bibles to page 28, uh, which is Genesis chapter 27. Uh, And there's a batting order in your newsletter on a piece of green paper. And you'll see those headings again. A dysfunctional family and a functioning plan. A dysfunctional family And a functioning plan. It's only a coincidence that the title of the sermon is on Jemima's dedication day. Um, But I, I will have just a few points to say to Chris and Anna and you're welcome to listen in at various points. Shall we just sketch the story so far? Um, uh, there's nothing worse is it, than trying to kind of dive into the middle of a story and not working out what's going on. I had that the other day when I was in the car and just switched on the radio and it was The Archers, which I haven't listened to the last couple of years, and I couldn't work out on earth what was going on. So let's just remind ourselves of the story so far, shall we? Um, Uh, we're looking at the story, this term, of Abraham and sons. Now, Abraham is one of the heroes of the Bible. He's received a wonderful promise from God that through Abraham and his descendants, the whole world is going to be blessed. And after many years of waiting, Abraham receives a son uh, by his wife, Sarah, a son called Isaac. And last week, we saw uh, the way that God provided a wife, His son Isaac in the form of Rebekah. And so the story moved on from Abraham to Isaac. Well, now we move on to the generation below with Isaac and Rebekah's children, Esau and Jacob, twin sons they were. And there, if you like, are four characters in our story today Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. They're characters rather than heroes because if you look at them, each of them is flawed. In some significant way. Let's just look at them in turn, shall we? First of all, there's Isaac, the father of the family. Uh, we know from the intervening chapters in chapter 25 that, that Isaac favors one son over another. He favors Esau over Jacob. It seems that this may be to do with Esau's capacity to hunt and find the very best game which Isaac loves. As one of the commentators says, it seems that his palate has ruled his heart for many a year. We don't know. But Isaac follows through this favoring of Esau with a secret arrangement detailed in verses 3 and 4. Now then, get your weapons, he says, your quiver and your bow, and go into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me so that I may give you my blessing before I die. For a father to give his blessing in these terms was the equivalent of making a will today, yeah? But there are two features that make Isaac's actions less than ideal. First of all, he does it in secret, whereas a blessing would normally have been given with the whole close family present. And secondly, we find out later from the prayer he eventually prays, this time for Jacob by mistake, is that he intends to make Esau the sole beneficiary not including Jacob at all. It it seems, you see, it's not only that Isaac's physical sight is failing. He's also losing sight of God's ways of justice and righteousness. His sense of taste may remain, but his sense of right and wrong has been dimmed. Uh, then there's the Rebecca, who, who's Isaac's wife. We we know from again from intervening chapters that Rebecca favors Jacob over Esau. And, and so it's not a huge surprise when she overhears Isaac plotting with Esau to crack a, a plan of her own, to deceive her own husband and bring success to her favoured son. Uh, and so the special food and the clothes and the hairy skins are all brought into play. That a wife has so little respect for her husband was unbelievably shocking in that culture. And while her plans may seem extremely high risk, it's also duplicitous in the extreme. So there's Isaac, Rebecca. then there is Jacob. His name means deceiver. And he certainly lives up to that name by going along with his mother's plan and follows it through lying to his own father. And that extraordinary scene, when Isaac says to him, how did you manage to get the game so quickly? He says, the Lord your God, notice your rather than our, the Lord your God gave me success. He's prepared to dishonor God in the midst of this deceit. Uh, and, and with respect for father being an unchallenged norm in that culture then, Jacob's bare-faced lies are staggering. And then there is Esau, the outdoor-loving country type who comes along too late and finds his blessing has already gone the way of his brother. Yet even he is a compromised character. He complains in verse 36, he took my birthright." Where actually, if you know the story, you know that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, or, or as the older translations had it, a mess of pottage. He, you know, he, he failed to kind of be responsible back then, and now he's not even owning up to what he had done. So, Isaac is unjust, Rebecca is scheming, Jacob is lying, and Esau is irresponsible, It's a pretty desperate picture of a dysfunctional family. They would have made excellent guests on any Jeremy Kyle show. And it's actually not that difficult to imagine such a time travel taking place. For not that much has changed in the last 4,000 years. The human heart, for all its capacity to do good, is still capable of those same sins. Deceit... Self-interest, blaming others, scheming. You can read about it in the papers. You may see it at work. Or perhaps, like me, you see it when you look in the mirror. For as much as some of the popular press would have us believe, the world is not divided into the goodies, which is you and me, and the baddies, which is everybody else. The Russian author Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil lies not between people, but down the middle of every human heart. So as well as holding up something a mirror to some of the temptations of my heart and perhaps of yours, I think this story also functions, it seems to me, as sort of a warning to us. It seems to me the Bible sometimes does that. It shows us a godless picture ...as a reminder of what we should not forget. And I think there are three things absent here... ...that that are kind of a warning to us... ...that we shouldn't forget their value. First of all, it seems to me here there's a warning... ...that we should not forget the impact of marriage on others. You see, at the heart of this dysfunctional family is a broken marriage. It's so sad, isn't it, to see that Isaac and Rebecca so tenderly in love at the start are now pulling in entirely different directions. Neither honors the other. And that plays out hugely negatively for the children and their wider family. Seems to be one of the great mistakes made by the last government when it redefined marriage was understanding or believing that marriage was nothing more than a contract between two people. Uh, The debate, if you remember, was cast simply in terms of if two people love each other, they should be able to get married, end of story. But the Bible teaches, and certainly the Church of England has always taught, that marriage is not just about two people. It's about the potential for and care of children that come about when a man and woman come together. Marriage, in other words, is not just about the two individuals involved, but about the stable upbringing of children that may come from that marriage and for the wider blessing of society. Marriage is not just a contract, it's a framework for the blessing of others. Let me offer just a word, if I can, to Chris and Anna as Jemima is dedicated today. I just want to say, first of all, watch your marriage and invest in it. Because the best way to love Jemima is to love each other first, as husband and wife. Second, I think this passage reminds us of the value of responsible parenting. Because if you like, it really struck me as I was reading this passage, it's actually Isaac and Rebecca who both lead their children astray. And yes, their children take up, but it's Isaac who persuades Esau for this secret. It's Rebecca who hatches the plan. Do you see what the parents do? They lead their children not towards God, but away from God. I don't know about you, I, I sense as a parent, there's a real confusion in our society about what parenting is for. I am... I remember when Sam was really little, when we were living in Basingstoke, receiving a letter from the government then, telling us, as parents, that the best thing we could do was to go and earn money for Sam, so that he could have lots of opportunities. And certainly, in this neck of the wood, there are a bewildering number of opportunities for children to explore. But I don't know, I can't help thinking, as I read the Bible, the real value in parenting is not creating opportunities but developing character. And key to that is ensuring that a child is brought up to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Isaac and rebecca they they model what comes first. And it isn't God. And Esau and Jacob see that. Uh, Let me just say to Chris and Anna, model to Jemima what comes first in your house. Pray with her every day. Read the Bible with her. And encourage her when she's older to do it on her own. And when she gets older and party invitations and sports dates come on a Sunday morning, think very carefully before you put them before worshipping the Lord together as a family. The absence of a good marriage, the absence of godly parenting. Thirdly, this passage reminds us of the value of a moral framework. Because it seems to me this this, this story takes place in a complete absence of a moral background. Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob and Esau, they're basically just in it for themselves. It's really sad to see. Not a few years ago, the LIBOR fixing scandal reminds us of what happens when a moral framework isn't there. Basically, traders did as much as they could get away with. And we were shocked at that. Or we were outraged by what happened in Paris on Friday evening. We know it's an affront to right and wrong, and yet, and yet, I find as a society, we're still quite suspicious about any sort of universal moral code because it seems to me we like to decide ourselves today what is right and wrong. We won't be told by others. I'll make my choices by my rules. No one can tell me otherwise. Don't be intolerant. But it seems to me a moral framework is essential for the flourishing of families and the flourishing of society. This story, it seems to me, is proof of what happens when it's every man to himself. And the moral framework in the Bible, summed up in the Ten Commandments and applied more widely in the Sermon on the Mount, is not there to spoil our lives, but as a framework for human flourishing. God's ways are good ways. You see, this story is a really sad story, but it reminds us, through what is absent, of what is really important, a marriage which blesses others. And it's not just simply about the two individuals. Parenting that is godly and leads children towards the Lord. And a moral framework that allows all to flourish. And yet, even as I say these words to you, I am both troubled and convicted. Not just because I know as your pastor that among us there are many for whom mention of marriage brings feeling of regret or of loss, and mentioning of parenting more questions than answers. No, I stand before you, knowing that I have failed in all three areas which I know are so important. I have fallen short as a husband, a father, and a servant of God. I may look with shock at the goings-on in Isaac's family, but my selfishness as a husband my impatience as a father, my inconsistency as a servant of God, leaves me wondering if I am really any better. What hope is there for me? That's when we need to look at this story from a divine perspective, through God's eyes. Because as we do that, we'll see the good news. If, like me, you find yourself not proud through this story, but perhaps humbled and convicted... Because what's interesting as we look at the functioning plan is that if you step back from this story, the interesting thing is that God's purposes are not thwarted by human sin. God's purposes are not thwarted by human sin. You'd think they would be. I mean, here is a family messing up so comprehensively that there is no way that God's purposes could be progressed in the middle of this mess. But that's not the case. You see, God's vision was to bring through Abraham and his descendants blessing to the whole world. They were to be his agents of bringing salvation to everybody. And that vision, believe it or not, is still being worked out. Because despite human sin and brokenness, God is still in charge. Jacob, for all his faults, and there are many, will be the one through whom God's salvation plan is taken to its next stage. Powerful though sin is in this family, it is not more powerful than God and his purposes. Because Jacob will go on, and from Jacob will be born Joseph, and from Joseph's descendants will be born Moses, and then from Moses' descendants will be born Saul and David and Solomon, and ultimately from David's family in David's city a baby will be born who the angels will call Christ the Lord. And from that story, I grab another sense of another time when God's salvation plan was not thwarted by human sin. I mean, it must have looked like it when Jesus, God's son, came up against the powers of Jerusalem. Here he was, right in the middle of other people's sin. There was Caiaphas, the high priest, and his petty jealousy there was pontius pilate and his political vacillation and weakness there was peter and his shame-faced denial there was judas and his destructive betrayal brokenness and sin swirling round jesus but this sin did not have the power to stop god's saving purposes in fact, in a mysterious way, and without ever calling it good, God used it to bring about his purposes as Jesus completed God's salvation plan. You see, God's salvation plan took a step forward with Jacob, but it didn't reach the end. And the clue to that is tucked away in verse 13 in our passage when Rebekah says to Jacob, who is worried about what will happen if his father finds out about his deception, she says, My son, let the curse fall on me. My son, let the curse fall on me. Now, in one way, it did. Because Jacob has to flee at the end of this story, and Rebecca will never see her son again. But in another way, Rebecca could never bear the full weight of her son's sin. Only one person could, and only one person did. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, took on himself the weight of the sin of the whole world. This week, in morning prayer, we read from Psalm 22 which starts with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may know they're the words that Jesus quoted as he came to death on the cross. And for me, they speak of just what Jesus had to carry there on the cross, not just the physical pain of death, awful though it was, but far more the weight and the pain of sin that caused for a moment the Father to turn his face from his Son, and for the Godhead to be turned asunder. Psalm 22 finishes with the words, It is done. And they were the very final words that Jesus uttered on the cross when he said, It is finished. Not I am finished, but it is finished. What is God's saving plan? to bring sinners like you and me back to him. And so I want to end with two thoughts for us to take away this morning, and that's this. The first is this. We need to respond to this saving plan. We need to respond to this saving plan. Because the temptation is, faced with a story like this in a world like ours, is simply to try and be good on our own to live a moral life that ticks every box and makes us feel good about ourselves and probably better than we see others. But that will not work. We will always miss the mark. And that is why Jesus came, to rescue us because we could not rescue ourselves. And the response God seeks is not for us to try and be good on our own, but to accept what God has done and receive what he has for us. Because when we come to God, recognizing that we cannot heal ourselves, that we have fallen short, and that only God can pay the price for our sin, we receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit to bring about lasting change from deep inside. And actually, that's what we really need, whatever role we feel feel ourselves in. Because the reality is, if I want to be a better husband, a father, a brother, a colleague, a friend the thing I need most of all is to be closer to Jesus Christ and to know that he alone is the one who can give me what I really need in terms of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit to change me deep down. To be better in that role, I need to be closer to him. Can I ask you this morning, are you committed to both responding to Jesus Christ and making that a daily response. Coming before him, before that difficult meeting, that painful family encounter, and saying, Lord, I need more of Jesus Christ in this place. And the second application is this. There is no place so messy that God cannot work. There is no place so messy that God cannot work. You'd think, you see, that Isaac's family was a lost cause. You'd think that Calvary was the end of the road. But God was at work in both places. And one of the lessons I've learned as a pastor over the years is that God's light can shine in the darkest places. In the journey of bereavement and loss, the aftermath of betrayal and even abuse. From a place of addiction, God can still be at work. He was at work in Isaac's family, and he was at work on Calvary. One of the fantastic things we heard earlier about the Joel project is that God is at work in an unpromising place. Homelessness need not be the end of the story for the God whose plans are not broken by our brokenness. Now perhaps that's an encouragement for you today because you're right in the middle of the mess and you need to hear that God is not waiting for that mess to be sorted before he can be at work. Or perhaps that's a reason for you to look back with thankfulness for a time when God was at work when it seemed he never would. You see, this story is not a distant story of a very strange people. It's one we probably recognize only too well of a dysfunctional family in a dysfunctional world. But the hope is that God was still able to use these circumstances to bring about his saving plan for the world and his saving purposes through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, that plan was fulfilled. We are called to respond to the rescue offered to us, to trust in the resources he alone can give, and to hope that the God who worked in Calvary will work in our broken world today. Let me pray.